Part two, chapter five of Lady Byron Vindicated A History of the Byron Controversy by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five The Direct Argument to Prove the Crime. Part two of two. From the preceding background of proof, I come forward and testify to an interview with Lady Byron in which she gave me specific information of the facts in the case. That I report the facts just as I received them from her, not altered or misremembered, is shown by the testimony of my sister, to whom I related them at the time. It cannot then be denied that I had this interview and that this communication was made i therefore testify that lady byron for a proper purpose and at a proper time stated to me the following things one that the crime which separated her from lord byron was incest two that she first discovered it by improper actions towards his sister which he meant to make her understand indicated the guilty relation three that he admitted it reasoned on it defended it tried to make her an accomplice and failing in that hated her and expelled her four that he threatened her that he would make it his life's object to destroy her character five that for a period she was led to regard this conduct as insanity and to consider him only as a diseased person six that she had subsequent proof that the facts were really as she suspected that there had been a child born of the crime whose history she knew that mrs lee had repented the purpose for which this was stated to me was to ask was it her duty to make the truth fully known during her lifetime here then is a man believed guilty of an unusual crime by two lawyers the best in england who have seen the evidence a man who dares not meet legal investigation the crime is named in society and deemed so far probable to the men of his generation as to be spoken of by shelley as the only important allegation against him he acts through life exactly like a man struggling with remorse and afraid of detection he has all the restlessness and hatred and fear that a man has who feels that there is evidence which might destroy him he admits an illegitimate child besides allegra a child believed to have been his is known to many in england added to all this his widow now advanced in years and standing on the borders of eternity being as appears by her writings and conversation of perfectly sound mind at the time testifies to me the facts before named which exactly correspond to probabilities i publish the statement and the solicitors who hold lady byron's private papers do not deny the truth of the story they try to cast discredit on me for speaking but they do not say that i have spoken falsely or that the story is not true the lawyer who knew lady byron's story in eighteen sixteen does not now deny that this is the true one several persons in england testify that at various times and for various purposes the same story has been told to them moreover it appears from my last letter addressed to lady byron on this subject that i recommended her to leave all necessary papers in the hands of some discreet persons who after both had passed away should see that justice was done the solicitors admit that lady byron has left sealed papers of great importance in the hands of trustees with discretionary power 
i have been informed very directly that the nature of these documents was such as to lead to the suppression of lady byron's life and writings this is all exactly as it would be if the story related by lady byron were the true one the evidence under this point of view is so strong that a great effort has been made to throw out lady byron's testimony this attempt has been made on two grounds first that she was under a mental hallucination this theory has been most ably refuted by the very first authority in england upon the subject he says quote, no person practically acquainted with the true characteristics of insanity would affirm that had this idea of incest been an insane hallucination lady byron could from the lengthened period which intervened between her unhappy marriage and death have refrained from exhibiting it not only to legal advisers and trustees assuming that she revealed to them the fact but to others exacting no pledge of secrecy from them as to her mental impressions lunatics do for a time and for some special purpose most cunningly conceal their delusions but they have not the capacity to struggle for thirty-six years as lady byron must have done with so frightful an hallucination without the insane state of mind becoming obvious to those with whom they are daily associating neither is it consistent with the experience to suppose that if lady byron had been a monomaniac her state of disordered understanding would have been restricted to one hallucination her diseased brain affecting the normal action of thought would in all probability have manifested other symptoms besides those referred to of aberration of intellect during the last thirty years i have not met with a case of insanity assuming the hypothesis of hallucination at all parallel with that of lady byron in my experience it is unique i never saw a patient with such a delusion we refer our readers to a careful study of dr forbes winslow's consideration of this subject given in part three any one who has been familiar with the delicacy and acuteness of dr winslow as shown in his work on obscure diseases of the brain and nerves must feel that his positive assertion on this ground is the best possible evidence we here gratefully acknowledge our obligations to dr winslow for the corrected proof of his valuable letter which he has done us the honour to send for this work we shall consider that his argument in connection with what the reader may observe of lady byron's own writings closes that issue of the case completely the other alternative is that lady byron deliberately committed false witness this was the ground assumed by the blackwood when in july eighteen sixty nine it took upon itself the responsibility of reopening the byron controversy it is also the ground assumed by the london quarterly of to-day both say in so many words that no crime was imputed to lord byron that the representations made by lushington in the beginning were false ones and that the story told to lady byron's confidential friends in later days was also false let us examine this theory in the first place it requires us to believe in the existence of a moral monster of whom madame brinvier is cited as the type the blackwood let it be remembered opens the controversy with the statement that lady byron was a madame brinvier the quarterly does not shrink from the same assumption let us consider the probability of this question 
if lady byron were such a woman and wished to ruin her husband's reputation in order to save her own and being perfectly unscrupulous had circulated against him a story of unnatural crime which had no proofs how came two of the first lawyers of england to assume the responsibility of offering to present her case in open court how came her husband if he knew himself guiltless to shrink from that public investigation which must have demonstrated his innocence most astonishing of all when he fled from trial and the report got abroad against him in england and was believed even by his own relations why did not his wife avail herself of the moment to complete her victory if at that moment she had publicly broken with mrs lee she might have confirmed every rumour did she do it and why not according to the blackwood we have here a woman who has made up a frightful story to ruin her husband's reputation yet who takes every pain afterwards to prevent its being ruined she fails to do the very thing she undertakes and for years after rather than injure him she loses public sympathy and by sealing the lips of her legal counsel deprives herself of the advantage of their testimony moreover if a desire for revenge could have been excited in her it would have been provoked by the first publication of the fourth canto of child harold when she felt that byron was attacking her before the world yet we have lady anne bernard's testimony that at this time she was so far from wishing to injure him that all her communications were guarded by cautious secrecy at this time also she had a strong party in england to whom she could have appealed again when don juan was first printed it excited a violent reaction against lord byron had his wife chosen then to accuse him and display the evidence she had shown to her counsel there is little doubt that all the world would have stood with her but she did not after his death when she spoke at last there seems little doubt from the strength of dr lushington's language that lady byron had a very strong case and that had she been willing her counsel could have told much more than he did she might then have told her whole story and been believed her word was believed by christopher north and accepted as proof that byron had been a great criminal had revenge been her motive she could have spoken the one word more that north called for the quarterly asks why she waited till everybody concerned was dead there is an obvious answer because while there was anybody living to whom the testimony would have been utterly destructive there were the best reasons for withholding it when all were gone from earth and she herself was in constant expectation of passing away there was a reason and a proper one why she should speak by nature and principle truthful she had had the opportunity of silently watching the operation of a permitted lie upon a whole generation she had been placed in a position in which it was necessary by silence to allow the spread and propagation through society of a radical falsehood lord byron's life fame and genius had all struck their roots into this lie been nourished by it and had derived thence a poisonous power in reading this history it will be remarked that he pleaded his personal misfortunes in his marriage as excuses for every offence against morality and that the literary world of england accepted the plea and tolerated and justified the crimes 
never before in england had adultery been spoken of in so respectful a manner and an adulteress openly praised and feted and obscene language and licentious images publicly tolerated and all on the plea of a man's private misfortunes there was therefore great force in the suggestion made to lady byron that she owed a testimony in this case to truth and justice irrespective of any personal considerations there is no more real reason for allowing the spread of a hurtful falsehood that affects ourselves than for allowing one that affects our neighbour this falsehood had corrupted the literature and morals of both england and america and led to the public toleration by respectable authorities of forms of vice at first indignantly rejected the question was was this falsehood to go on corrupting literature as long as history lasted had the world no right to true history had she who possessed the truth no responsibility to the world was not a final silence a confirmation of a lie with all its consequences the testimony of lady byron so far from being thrown out altogether as the quarterly proposes has a peculiar and specific value from the great forbearance and reticence which characterized the greater part of her life the testimony of a person who has shown in every action perfect friendliness to another comes with the more weight on that account testimony extorted by conscience from a parent against a child or a wife against a husband where all the other actions of the life prove the existence of kind feeling is held to be the strongest form of evidence the fact that lady byron under the severest temptations and the bitterest insults and injuries withheld every word by which lord byron could be criminated so long as he and his sister were living is strong evidence that when she did speak it was not under the influence of ill-will but of pure conscientious convictions and the fullest weight ought therefore to be given to her testimony we are asked now why she ever spoke at all the fact that her story is known to several persons in england is brought up as if it were a crime to this we answer lady byron had an undoubted moral right to have exposed the whole story in the public court in eighteen sixteen and thus cut herself loose from her husband by a divorce for the sake of saving her husband and sister from destruction she waived this right to self-justification and stood for years a silent sufferer under calumny and misrepresentation she desired nothing but to retire from the whole subject to be permitted to enjoy with her child the peace and seclusion that belonged to her sex her husband made her through his life and after his death a subject of such constant discussion that she must either abandon the current literature of her day or run the risk of reading more or less about herself in almost every magazine of her time conversations with lord byron notes of interviews with lord byron journals of time spent with lord byron were constantly spread before the public lee hunt galt medwin trelawney lady blessington dr kennedy and thomas moore all poured forth their memorials and in all she figured prominently all these had their tribes of reviewers and critics who also discussed her the profound mystery of her silence seemed constantly to provoke inquiry people could not forgive her for not speaking her privacy retirement and silence were set down as coldness haughtiness and contempt of human sympathy 
she was constantly challenged to say something as for example in the noctes of november eighteen twenty five six months after byron's death christopher north says speaking of the burning of the autobiography quote, i think since the memoir was burned by these people these people are bound to put us in possession of the best evidence they still have the power of producing in order that we may come to a just conclusion as to a subject upon which by their act at least as much as by any other people's act we are compelled to consider it our duty to make up our deliberate opinion deliberate and decisive woe be to those who provoke this curiosity and will not allay it woe be to them say i woe to them says the world when lady byron published her statement which certainly seemed called for by this language christopher north blamed her for doing it and then again said that she ought to go on and tell the whole story if she was thus adjured to speak blamed for speaking and adjured to speak further all in one breath by public prints there is reason to think that there could not have come less solicitation from private sources from friends who had access to her at all hours whom she loved by whom she was beloved and to whom her refusal to explain might seem a breach of friendship yet there is no evidence on record that we have seen that she ever had other confidant than her legal counsel till after all the actors in the events were in their graves and the daughter for whose sake largely the secret was guarded had followed them now does any one claim that because a woman has sacrificed for twenty years all cravings for human sympathy and all possibility of perfectly free and unconstrained intercourse with her friends that she is obliged to go on bearing this same lonely burden to the end of her days let any one imagine the frightful constraint and solitude implied in this sentence let any one too think of its painful complications in life the roots of a falsehood are far-reaching conduct that can only be explained by criminating another must often seem unreasonable and unaccountable and the most truthful person who feels bound to keep silence regarding a radical lie of another must often be placed in positions most trying to conscientiousness the great merit of caleb williams as a novel consists in its philosophical analysis of the utter helplessness of an innocent person who agrees to keep the secret of a guilty one one sees there how that necessity of silence produces all the effect of falsehood on his part and deprives him of the confidence and sympathy of those with whom he would take refuge for years this unnatural life was forced on lady byron involving her as in a network even in her dearest family relations that when all the parties were dead lady byron should allow herself the sympathy of a circle of intimate friends is something so perfectly proper and natural that we cannot but wonder that her conduct in this respect has ever been called in question if it was her right to have had the public expose in eighteen sixteen it was certainly her right to show to her own intimate circle the secret of her life when all the principal actors were passed from earth the quarterly speaks as if by thus waiting she deprived lord byron of the testimony of living witnesses but there were as many witnesses and partisans dead on her side as on his lady milbank and sir ralph sir samuel romilly and lady anne bernard were as much dead as hobhouse moore and other of byron's partisans 
the quarterly speaks of lady byron as running round and repeating her story to people mostly below her own rank in life to those who know the personal dignity of lady byron's manners represented and dwelt on by her husband in his conversations with lady blessington this coarse and vulgar attack only proves the poverty of a cause which can defend itself by no other weapons lord byron speaks of his wife as highly cultivated as having quote, a degree of self-control i never saw equalled i am certain he says that lady byron's first idea is what is due to herself i mean that it is the undeviating rule of her conduct now my besetting sin is a want of that self-respect which she has in excess but though i accuse lady byron of an excess of self-respect i must in candour admit that if any person ever had excuse for an extraordinary portion of it she has as in all her thoughts words and actions she is the most decorous woman that ever existed this is the kind of woman who has lately been accused in the public prints as a blabber of secrets and a gossip in regard to her private difficulties with children grandchildren and servants it is a fair specimen of the justice that has generally been meted out to lady byron in eighteen thirty six she was accused of having made a confidant of campbell on the strength of having written him a note declining to give him any information or answer any questions in july eighteen sixty nine she was denounced by blackwood as a madame ranvier for keeping such perfect silence on the matter of her husband's character and in the last quarterly she is spoken of as a gossip running round and repeating her story to people below her rank while we are upon this subject we have a suggestion to make john stuart mill says that utter self-abnegation has been preached to women as a peculiarly feminine virtue it is true but there is a moral limit to the value of self-abnegation it is a fair question for the moralist whether it is right and proper wholly to ignore one's personal claims to justice the teachings of the saviour give us warrant for submitting to personal injuries but both the saviour and saint paul manifested bravery in denying false accusations and asserting innocence lady byron was falsely accused of having ruined the man of his generation and caused all his vices and crimes and all their evil effects on society she submitted to the accusation for a certain number of years for reasons which commended themselves to her conscience but when all the personal considerations were removed and she was about passing from life it was right it was just it was strictly in accordance with the philosophical and ethical character of her mind and with her habit of considering all things in their widest relations to the good of mankind that she should give serious attention and consideration to the last duty which she might owe to abstract truth and justice in her generation in her letter on the religious state of england we find her advocating an absolute frankness in all religious parties she would have all openly confessed those doubts which from the best motives are usually suppressed and believed that as a result of such perfect truthfulness a wider love would prevail among christians 
this shows the strength of her conviction of the power and importance of absolute truth and shows therefore that her doubts and conscientious inquiries respecting her duty on this subject are exactly what might have been expected from a person of her character and principles having thus shown that lady byron's testimony is the testimony of a woman of strong and sound mind that it was not given from malice nor ill-will that it was given at a proper time and in a proper manner and for a purpose in accordance with the most elevated moral views and that it is coincident with all the established facts of this history and furnishes a perfect solution of every mystery of the case we think we shall carry the reader with us in saying that it is to be received as absolute truth this conviction we arrive at while as yet we are deprived of the statement prepared by lady byron and the proof by which she expected to sustain it both which as we understand are now in the hands of her trustees thus ends chapter five the direct argument to prove the crime part two of two read for you by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana